Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, President, dear friends. Our topic today is the future of Europe. We Central Europeans have suffered for decades under communist dictatorship and Soviet military occupation. We are grateful to God for being able to rejoin Europe and being able to become members of the European Union. The way we see it, Europe is the best place in the world for human life, for the time being. We can live in freedom and prosperity for the time being. If we think about the future, we can see serious dangers. We must therefore speak frankly and openly. This is a precondition of our future success. I have to say, the future of Europe is casting a shadow on the present of Europe. Tomorrow is casting a shadow on today. This explains why radical parties were able to gain ground even here in the most successful continent of the world. Sounds like a pretty normal speech by the leader of an EU member state. In fact, if you're a fan of our work here at Spectacles, you probably agree with it so far. Democracy is facing a series of discontents, and the future holds some daunting challenges. But where Harry and I, and you, might point to democratic backsliding and the slow growth of authoritarianism as those challenges, this speaker, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, goes on to identify the supposedly impending replacement of ethnic Europeans by Muslims, a textbook example of the racist great replacement theory as the principal threat of the future. Today, we're going to talk about Mr. Orban. So last week, we discussed an article by the political science professor Nancy Bermeo about democratic backsliding or the common process by which democracy erodes today. This week, we're going to take a deep dive into one of the classic cases of democratic backsliding, Hungary and its prime minister, as Philip said, Viktor Orban. One of Bermeo's key points, which we discussed, is that in recent decades, uh, aspiring autocrats have adopted new, more subtle tactics for dismantling democracy in their countries. That the speech you just heard seems fairly banal helps to demonstrate the problem Bermeo lays out. We can't always tell when political leaders are engaging in democratic backsliding. And even when we know it's happening, they'll tend to couch all their comments in pro-democracy language and appeals. But that doesn't mean it isn't happening. Viktor Orban has radically increased the power of the Hungarian executive and is engaging in what Bermeo calls the strategic manipulation of elections. All of this has been done through strictly legal procedures. 
So before we get into that, I think we'll just identify sort of the major players of Hungarian politics that are relevant to this story. So first up is Fidesz, which is Orban's party. It's a far-right nationalist party that arose in the late 80s, and we'll get more into that later. Mm -hmm. But that's Orban's party. And then we see today basically a united opposition of essentially every other party in Hungary. And this united opposition is fronted by two in particular, MSZP, which is the uh, Socialist Party of Hungary. It's really center-left, but it's common practice in a lot of European countries to call a center-left party the Socialist Party. And Jobbik, which is a formerly far-right neo-Nazi party until really 2015, which since then they've really sort of moderated into a more traditional right, moderate right party with some nationalism, but it's pretty tame, even especially in comparison to Fidesz. Right. Whether you buy what you're selling, what they're selling, I guess, is right. up to you or the people who really do right. research on them. I don't know enough to say, but it seems like partially a response to Orban's dismantling of democracy in Hungary that they've and they can't find a place within an opposition coalition if they remain right you know, neo-nazis right because right. decent people don't <laughs> like neo-nazis <laughs> before you can do much democratic backsliding though you gotta have power how did fidesz get that yeah so i think we can identify three sort of watershed moments the 2006 election in hungary the 2008 financial crisis and the 2010 election in hungary and i, I guess i should say and victor orban held power once between 1998 and 2002 where they governed as a pretty typical center-right party but something changed between 2002 uh, and 2010. in 2006 in the hungarian elections fidesz didn't win. The Socialist Party, the MSZP, won. The only problem is that for the Socialists, in a leaked speech by the by the Socialist Prime Minister, I think either in the year 2006 or maybe it was, year, yeah, in the year 2006. Right after the election. Right basically. after the election. Okay, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> the Prime Minister gave a speech, um, a private speech to the, to the to the to his party, or to, I guess, was it party like elite members? Yeah, it was to the party. And um, it ended up getting leaked right. to the public and broadcasted, and well, it didn't didn't look too good for the socialists. I mean, it was incredibly vulgar speech, but you know we're family friendly here at Spectacles, so we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about that part. But we do have just a little bit of a quote for you from the speech that should illustrate how how bad this would be to, uh, for a party leader to leak these kind of statements to the public. He said. No European country has done something as boneheaded as we have. Obviously, we lied throughout the last year and a half, two years. And meanwhile, by the way, we've done nothing for four years, nothing. I almost perished because I had to pretend for 18 months that we were governing. Instead, we lied morning, noon, and night. Yeah, so uh, that pretty much says all, and... The wild thing about this, it, it, it inspired almost immediate widespread protests across the country. But the craziest part is that this guy did not resign for two years after this after this speech, right? So yeah. 
just think about how that's going to undermine public support, undermine confidence in democracy as a yep. form of government. Say so we didn't do anything, but we lied and look <laughs> at us. We just won an election. Right. Right. He survived a confidence vote within his party, which means that his own party members supported him after he said this. I mean, you know, an insane public relations error that had not just a public relations error, but an incredible failure of how a democracy is supposed exactly. to function. Yeah, that's right. Like you exactly. say something like that or you behave that way, you ought to be removed by your party. Clearly, things aren't working very well. Right. Exactly. And that was followed by the 2008 financial crisis. Two years later, the financial crisis is actually what caused the former prime minister to resign, not the speech that he gave, although you can imagine he was probably not very popular. Well, you know, already. he's not accustomed to doing anything. And in 2008, <laughs> when the economy crashes, suddenly you've got to do something. That's a pretty hard situation for him. Yeah. So the global economy crashed, as we all know. And in Hungary, economic growth reversed from about 4% GDP per year to negative 5%. Uh, and before that, Hungary had been considered a good country for investment by foreign companies. I mean, it just recently emerged from communist rule, and it was, seemed like the democratic consolidation was going well, there was opportunities for investment. So it was especially exposed to the ebbs and flows of international finance. And so when the recession went global, Hungary was hit particularly hard. And the Socialist Party decided to take uh, what we would call a conditional loan from the IMF, the European Union, and the World Bank. Uh, conditional loan basically means that you get money from these international institutions, or in the EU, the case of the EU would be called a supranational institution. You take this loan, but you have to impose what we would call austerity measures. The, the, the idea behind conditional loans is we'll give you this money, but we need to make sure that your government is in working order, that, uh, that you know, this is not being wasted. Spending responsible. As if Hungary had precipitated the international <laughs> financial crisis. Right. But there we go. They were forced to impose austerity, which, yeah, that that's real popular usually right. when you do that. It cuts to public service, to, to, to the budget, to the public service budget, and wage cuts for, like, civil service employees. And so, as you can imagine, as Philip in, said... In 2010, very unpopular. The socialists right. lose. Yeah. <laughs> and you get a big victory, both from the 2006 controversy. I mean, it's tough to come back from what happened there. And then also with the financial crisis, it really paved the way for nationalist appeals. I mean, mm -hmm. Hungary's been subjected to the to the injustices of the European Union and the World Bank and international finance and all these things. And as economic crises often have throughout history enabled nationalist appeals. And, you know, not to mention that Fidesz, this nationalist party, was the only other competitive party besides the socialists. Right. The only so, other party large enough to be able to plausibly win a governing majority. Right. And so it was a natural winner. But this stands as a watershed moment, not just because Orban and his party won, but because they won big. Right. And lopsidedly. Mm -hmm. I mean, disproportionately, I should say. They won 53% of the popular vote, which in a multi-party system is already a good performance, right? To, to win a, a majority outright. But they converted that to 68% of seats in parliament a two-thirds majority out of just barely over a majority of the popular vote. And it turns out that that was enough of a majority in parliament to rewrite the constitution unilaterally. Now, if you go back and look at the coverage of this election- Which we did. From 2010, nobody seems to have expected what would happen next. 
an extraordinary rollback of democracy and an institutionalization of authoritarianism. Most people were just talking about what's this going to mean for Hungary's economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, after all, Viktor Orban was a darling of the pro-democracy movement for a long time. In the 80s, he was involved as an activist for against the Soviets, right. against communism. And that's how Fidesz came about as a, as a youth-oriented pro-democracy activism organization. Mm -hmm. But as soon as something like two-thirds power was in his grasp, that party took a sharp turn. So it's worth asking, what did Orban do with this majority? Where did the party go? Yeah, so before we dive in, um, I just wanted to point out that there's a lot of discussion of sort of the ideology behind Orban and Fidesz and this idea of illiberal democracy and populism. And that's something that I'm sure that, you know, Philip and I will confront and discuss in a future episode. But right now, I think we just want to focus on what exactly it was that they did to acquire power, because those are lessons that are applicable broadly across democracies to see these sort of mechanisms of uh, soft authoritarianism at work. And one of the mechanisms that is used or the processes that leaders engage in that Bermeo discusses is executive aggrandizement. Right. The process of slow, methodical consolidation of power in the executive figure or figures in a democracy intended to make legitimate opposition more difficult. It almost always happens with democratically elected officials with a strong mandate to rule, which means that it's a strong alibi. You have deniability. You say, I'm doing this because the people want it, right? Right, right. Yeah. You have they this... clearly love me, so what does the opposition's feasibility have anything to do with the mandate of the people? Right, you're armed with democratic legitimacy. Right. And common targets to undermine as the executive seeking to aggrandize yourself are judicial independence or otherwise largely technocratic or professionalized bureaucracies in favor of more partisan ones. In other words, get rid of checks and balances largely get rid of independence get rid of any power outside of the executive so that you can hamper opposition it's worth noting here that a lot of the examples we're going to talk about for executive aggrandizement are largely enhancements of the fidesz party power right but the thing is orban helped to found fidesz in 1988 and quickly rose to prominence becoming its first president in 1993 He's headed the party ever since, and in many ways, Fidesz is Orban's party, is Orban. Uh, so anything that enhances that party's power, in many ways, is, is an aggrandizement of his own personal power as the executive, not just of Hungary, but of the Fidesz party. Right. I mean, Fidesz's supermajority is the Orban's. instrument of Orban's power, but right. it is all of the power truly lies with Orban. The structure right. of the party gives him right. power. And, you know, he has, I guess, in some ways, he has, you know, a tight group of cronies around him who also have power, but really, it's him. He's at the top of the food chain. Right. So, largely, the executive aggrandizement takes place through the politicization of the bureaucracy and the judiciary, as Harry said. So... With that two-thirds majority, Fidesz repealed a rule. This I just note this because I think it's ridiculous. With a two-thirds majority, they repealed a constitutional rule that required a four-fifths majority to write a new constitution, because to amend the constitution only took two-thirds. 
And then with the two thirds majority, they wrote a new constitution, completely circumventing the, the four fifths majority requirement, which is just ridiculous. But so starting with the bureaucracy, because it's with this new constitution, they do these things. They undermined the independence of the Public Broadcasting Commission, the Electoral Commission, the State Audit Office, and the Prosecutor General, General's Office, among other things. All these previously neutral or nonpartisan bureaucracies became extensions of the party, inhibiting opposition and, very, very importantly, accountability. This is something we've touched on a lot in spectacles articles and in other episodes is that when you mm -hmm. lose that democratic accountability no one's there to hold the powerful to account and they'll do what they want right. right and so that's a that's a big change they also created a new media council in 2011 for the monitoring monitoring of media publications and the press and that's going to be really important in a second but what did they do about the judiciary harry well in the key sense, they undermined its independence. They lowered the retirement age for judges so they could oust older judges who might have been independent, uh, independent of, Fidesz of power. Fidesz, right? So you yeah. force out the old guys. And in 2013, they amended the new constitution to further erode judicial independence. All 15 of the highest court's judges were appointed by Fidesz, and many are directly loyal to the party, right? And so the absence of an independent judiciary just means that well, you can say, I mean, and this is an important aspect of democratic backsliding. You can say, oh, the court is independent. There's this separate body that has the power of judicial. It's separate. Review. Look, its building is is its building is two blocks right, down. It's, two, we're, it's, it's not, we're not the same down. thing. It's two blocks down. And so, if for example, if the EU wants to, you know, look at them and say, hey, you know, you've reduced the independence of the court, they say, what are you talking about? The court is, you know, we just lowered people's retirement age. We just we forced everyone judges. to retire, <laughs> and we, you know, we staffed them ourselves. What's the problem? And that is a key aspect of democratic backsliding, right? You make it, you do it through these legal procedures that make it hard for international bodies to, you know, punish or sanction, and you make it difficult for domestic opposition to really be able to mobilize against the actions that you're taking. So that, you know, the, the bureaucracy and the judiciary under the thumb of the executive become incredibly important tools of maintaining political power and, and you know, giving the executive th these drastic increases in his own power. So what, after all that, did Orban do with that power? After all, we're here to talk about strategic manipulation. Well, as Nancy Bermeo wrote in the piece we discussed last week, and Harry, I think you noted this in the last episode, strategic manipulation of elections frequently follows from executive aggrandizement. They, they go hand in hand, usually, because increased executive power allows the executive to shift the rules more in his or her favor, which is what we've seen happen in Orban's Hungary. Once you have that power consolidated, you can use it for strategic manipulation. And to make sure that you won't lose future elections. Right. So there, the first instance really of, the first big instance of strategic manipulation that we can talk about is manipulation of the media. And this took place with the newly party-dominated Media Council, Audit Office, and Prosecutor's, Prosecutor General's Office. The party could slam undesirable media outlets with audits and lawsuits, hampering them with extraordinary legal costs. 
you know, of course, all the while ignoring corruption of Fidesz party members or any wrongdoing of Fidesz-friendly outlets. Then these economically struggling publications were either forced to close, all right, so problem solved, no more of that dissenting voice, or sell out to Orban's allies. Basically say, I've got to get out of business. Oh, look, here's a guy with a lot of money. He wants to buy me out. Great deal. Oh, it turns out the guy with lots of money is Orban's friend. Shocker. (laughs) And so just to give you a big picture rundown of what the media environment looks like today in Hungary. In 2015, there were 31 overtly pro-government outlets. Today, there are about 800. And they all operate under an umbrella foundation run by a former Fidesz minister of parliament. I think that should get across the scale of the media buyout and manipulation that's taken place in Mm -hmm. Hungary. Of course, there are like independent blogs and smaller publications that are essentially all online. But if you're talking television or radio, the space is heavily dominated by essentially propaganda arms of the political party. Right. And that's made life very difficult for opposition, right, to get their message out and to compete with the kind of rhetoric that's being pushed by all these major outlets. That is obviously something that would be devastating to a political opposition, right? One of the, you know, key elements of democracy going back to the definitions of a political scientist like Dahl, for example, would be, right, that the access to free and independent media so that voters can sort of formulate preferences and decide who they want to vote for. And without that, it becomes very difficult. Right. Another aspect of this is the closure of the Central European University, which for a long time was based in Hungary until very recently. The Central European University still is, no longer in Hungary, an institution of higher education, which was founded by the billionaire finance philanthropist George Soros, who has been um, drawn up as sort of a a, a shadowy figure in American politics a little bit during the 2016 election and and since. But he's Hungarian. He was born in Hungary. And the the kind of rhetoric that we see a little bit here and there in the US, I mean, it's strong in a lot of Europe and in particular in Hungary. And it's actually... Uh, pretty anti-Semitic as well. It's useful to remember that that goes on because Soros is Jewish and has a lot of money. And so, you know, that's, you see what the the anti-Semites, what the connections that they'll draw. Right. And so the Central European University founded by Soros serves a lot of different European nationalities. It even has programs outside of the EU. It was accredited actually in the United States. Most of its operations were located in Hungary in the capital Budapest um, until 2018. And it was founded by Soros to be sort of an incubation center for liberal, future liberal world leaders. And he wanted to cultivate sort of the values of the you know, quote unquote open society among among the students who were there, right? So you think liberal polit- future liberal politicians in Budapest learning about, you know, ma- the maintenance of liberal democracy. At least this was Soros's goal. I don't know enough about its actual functioning to know how much that worked. But I do know that a lot of very young, bright minds went through there, including actually Fidesz ministers under Viktor Orban, who not turned against not, it. Not to mention Orban studied at Oxford for a semester on a George Soros-funded scholarship. Right, yeah, um, that's separate, but, but that is... But it's important to note here, you say that it's meant to sort of foster potential leaders of, liberal de- of the liberal democratic world. And I think, you know, that's not controversial. And to either a rational observer or to Viktor Orban, that's true. It's a bastion of liberal democracy. Right. The trouble is, 
to Orban, that's a threat. That's a threat. Exactly. So in 2017, the Hungarian parliament passed a law making it difficult for the Central European University to be reaccredited. And in 2018, they declined to approve one of the steps for reaccreditation, which led the university to move to Vienna in Austria. And as Philip just noted, right, you force out one of the best, it was one of the best universities in the country. It's actually not the, as far as I know, not the only university that came under threat because of Viktor Orban, but it's a particularly sharp example. But one of the best universities in the country existed outside of Orban's social control, as Philip noted. And as I pointed out, right, this idea that it's a bastion of liberal thought and future liberal leadership, um, clear move, right, designed to reduce this potential opposition to the regime, right? If right. you're Viktor Orban, you don't want a bunch of smart young people in your backyard who are, who can, you know, who point care out about say, liberal who democracy. care about liberal democracy <laughs> and can pinpoint exactly what you're doing and say, hey, you know, stop. And Orban, right. Being a dissident himself would probably know that, right? Who was yeah, once, he's a guy who made his an career communist dissident. Yeah, uh, would probably understand that, and so it's just, you know a smart move from his end, as 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 tragic as it as it is for for Hungary. Yeah, so that's an important example. And so both of these, whether it's the university or whether it's the media buyout, this is essentially both these efforts can be filed under trying to squash sort of the dissemination of dissident ideas, mm -hmm. pro-liberal democracy and sort of pluralist ideas of society, stamp them out. Right. And that can be really effective. You know, you change the narrative. And, but perhaps even more effectively is even if that doesn't, you know, totally squash civil society, even if there's a, a large portion, perhaps even a majority that still values liberal democracy and sees through the propaganda and all this, mm -hmm. well, the most effective part of the strategic manipulation that Orban and Fidesz have done is changing the electoral rules such that that wouldn't even matter. So one of his first moves was to reform the electoral system to his advantage. Before the reform, Hungary had a split electoral system with slightly over half the seats distributed by proportional representation and slightly under half of the seats distributed through single member district plurality. Think how we elect representatives to the house. And if you're more curious about the political spectrum and election systems and stuff like that, Philip and I did a previous bird's eye on that, which we'll the whole series. link in the show notes. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want more on that, listen to that. But I think that's a sufficient explanation for, for what we're going for right yeah, now. Yeah, those are the basics. Yeah. And so the reform that Fidesz undertook cut the total number of seats by a third, redrew the electoral map, and increased the amount of single-member district seats relative to the number of proportional seats. Now, you might remember that Fidesz got their two-thirds majority totally disproportionately to the just over a majority that they won popularly. That was possible because of single-member district seats. Because if you win, you can win a huge portion of single-member district seats with a bare majority. Right. And that could amount to way more than a bare majority of seats in parliament. Right. So basically what they've done is they've taken this aspect of the electoral system that was favorable to them because they're the biggest party right. and amplified its disproportionate effect. Exactly. There are some also more complex sort of arcane rules about things that they did. But the takeaway here 
is to talk about how effective this was. So remember in 2010, they did win a popular majority, though they got a wildly disproportionate amount of seats. They did win a popular majority. And that was because Hungary's electoral system from the outset was written to favor larger parties a little bit more, which is actually a not necessarily a bad thing to do. You don't want to have a really fractured parliament. It makes it hard to form coalitions and get anything done. And so it makes sense if you're going to have a system that has multiple parties, you sort of want it to gravitate towards two or three large parties, which can kind of be the anchors of the system. Right. The flip side of that being that if you have something like what happened with the Socialist Party, where your credibility is totally shot, only one feasible party remains and basically gets a clean sweep of all of the constituency Which, which can be really dangerous because, well, they can modify the Constitution. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the important thing to remember is in 2010, they did win a majority, though they got disproportionate seats. In 2014, and then again in 2018, neither time did they win a popular majority of the vote. Right. That's key. They won 44% in 2014 and like 49% in 2018. And yet, because of these new electoral rules, they retained their two-thirds majority in the parliament. Right? So despite not even getting a majority of the popular vote, that's how effective these electoral rules were at ensuring the continued power of the party. Right. Basically tilted the playing field insanely. And that's why we have today Fidesz and everyone else. Because to be competitive, every single other party in Hungary has to join up together. So what can we make of all this? Where does all this information about Hungary leave us? Yeah, so lately there's finally been some pushback from the European Union, which is a a major funding source for Hungary's government, which is ironic because of all the anti-EU sentiment. Anyway, but they've withheld some funding here and there, and that's been effective as utilized and so far as it can be. And the European Court of Justice finally said that the independence of Hungary's court is a problem last year. But the changes to independence (laughs) were made in 2010 and 2013. So what, eight years late, 11 years late. Just a touch, just just a touch touch late. late. Uh, You just let them consolidate that, you know, soft autocratic power and all that time. But whatever. Until now, right, there really haven't been repercussions. And it's, as I say, too late to do a lot about it. So, I mean, it's frustrating, but that, you know, that's the situation we find ourselves in. What you're pointing out, Harry, is for a decade... Viktor Orban repeatedly demonstrated the very, very low cost to rolling back democracy, a lesson that hasn't gone unlearned elsewhere, as Spectacles has repeatedly covered around the world. I mean, that's our whole frickin' thing. Democracy is not doing great in the world right now. And Hungary's example is one pretty significant contributing factor to that It was that really trend. the canary in the coal mine, honestly. It really I was. Mean, the, the trend, I think, really got going 2014, 2015, 2016. But Hungary, this stuff happened in 2010, it's, 2011, 2012. It's, it's very, and of course, we talked about how there are other external factors that led to Fidesz's getting in power. But if you're talking about key watershed moments that have led to a global sort of backsliding of democracy... It's really hard to overstate the importance of the example of Hungary. Right. So the the key to saying that, to exploring all this, to learning this information about Hungary, the key to this whole exercise in this episode 
is to get acquainted with the forms and strategies that modern democratic backsliding and erosion takes. In other words, how democracy is supplanted by authoritarianism most effectively today. Because, as the example of Hungary demonstrates, failure to recognize the gravity of those seemingly small changes a little less independence here, a little less independence there, we'll mm -hmm. lower the retirement age here, we'll appoint my guys there. Failing to recognize the gravity of that stuff is what allowed Orban to pursue his efforts so unchallenged by institutions like the EU or international actors like the US that might have been able to exert some pressure, but now, much too late. Right, and so... If we want to preserve democracy around the world in the United States, we have to take a close look at places like Hungary, right? We have to pick up on those trends and signs that Bermeo identifies in her article and learn to apply them to other cases so we can get advanced warning when we see things happening. So next week, we're going to be talking about the case of the U.S. We're bringing it home, democratic backsliding on our own shores. So until then... Think about how we might be able to see executive aggrandizement and strategic manipulation at play here. See if you can come up with some examples, because while we'll talk about some next week, you might come up with things that don't occur to us. And a key goal for us at Spectacles is to give you, our audience, the ideas to use as tools to diagnose democratic health on your own. So until next week, that's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.